Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present, and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings, and giver of life, come dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The topic for this evening, this last talk, some reflections on a liturgical catechesis or a liturgical hearing, as we've now said several times, hearing the faith liturgically, meaning that the, the church being the church in worship uh, provides the foundation for the faith. And I said that this evening we would have some reflections on what is the, the heart, the climax of Christian Orthodox, and of course I mean that in its widest sense, uh, worship, that which is true and gives the glory to God that is God's own glory. And, and of course, we are speaking of the celebration of the Divine Liturgy, the Mass, the Lord's own self-sacrifice for the life of the world. And the reflections that I offer this evening are not intended to be uh, exhaustive. They're only uh, a very few things that, that could be said because there is no limit to what could be said about this revelation of the very heart of the love of God for his creation, the, the sacrament of love. Now, uh, I happen to be reading a recently published book, I think it came out last year, called uh, On the Tree of the Cross, and it is a collection of uh, essays and papers uh, that were delivered last year in honor of uh, Father George Florovsky, and maybe some of you have heard that name and maybe others of you have not, but just by way of introduction, Father George Florovsky is regarded by, certainly by all, as a great Orthodox theologian of the, of, uh, the Russian Orthodox tradition. Uh, but in his case in particular, so much of his writings tried to speak, he's, uh, well, let me put it another way, he's another one of these two-lunged theologians who, who speak competently for both the East and the West. And in this case, uh, the, the, the subtitle of the book is uh, George Florovsky and the Patristic Doctrine of Atonement. Now, I read a little bit of this to my class for the Magdala Apostolate on, on liturgical spirituality this morning, uh, but I want to read just a couple sentences uh, of it to you as well, because I find that the, the, what is said 
is so basic, yet it is said so well. And it has to, to do with the reality of worship, the reality of, of the liturgy. The author uh, of this particular essay says that his name, by the way, we should always give credit to our credit is due. And this is someone I do not know, but his name is Father Irene Steenberg. And he says this, Christian as well as Old Testament liturgical life is rooted in the belief that worship is something divine. And thus, of course, uh, in, in our Byzantine tradition, we speak of the Holy Eucharist as the divine liturgy. Uh, in the same way, in, in the Latin tradition, uh, people speak of, at least those who, who tend to speak more traditionally, speak of a holy mass. They're not satisfied with just simply uh, the word without an adjective. Holy mass, the holy sacrifice of the mass. Uh, that, therefore, which is holy, is to do with God. And so... Uh, Liturgical life is rooted in the belief that worship is something divine. Now listen carefully to this. Revealed by God rather than fashioned by man. Revealed by God rather than fashioned by man. In other words, not something we make up. And it occurred to me as I was preparing for my class this morning that there is a, a verse in the Psalms. In fact, it's the first verse of Psalm uh, 65 in the Septuagint, the church numbering, or 66 in probably most of the Bibles that you're using. That is used very, very frequently in the liturgy. It's used for a psalm response chosen for, for uh, introit or gradual responsorial psalm or prokimenon, as we call it in the Byzantine tradition. <clears throat> that first verse, that, that when correctly translated, uh, reads like this, or should be, we should say sings like this, because the psalms are songs. I always wince when I hear someone uh, who is, whose responsibility is to proclaim the scriptures in the church, because so many of the psalms speak of singing, and you hear such a thing as, sing to the Lord a new song, said in a recited voice, not sung. It's an inherent contradiction. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the first verse of Psalm 65 is, or, Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing the praises of his name. Give glory to his praise. That's literally what it says. Sometimes it's not tra translated that way because it sounds awkward. Give glory to his praise. What could that possibly mean? So uh, I've, I've seen translations that replace the literal with give him glorious praise, which sounds more understandable instead of give glory to his praise. But that's literally what it says. And it's very important because it is telling us that to worship God, to praise him, means that we do not have the capability on our own to do that unless we are admitted into his presence. And that presence is a continual communion of praise and glory that is shared perfectly among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, worship is not something that is fashioned by us, but is revealed by God. And it's revealed precisely so that there may be a created experience in the temporal world, 
of the eternal heavenly worship that surrounds the throne of God. Earthly worship mirrors heavenly reality. Now in my class this morning, I mentioned the many instances in the book of Revelation or the apocalypse where John sees this vision of heavenly worship, and I won't go through all of that here. But clearly that is what is revealed there. John is invited to come up through the open door in heaven, and he beholds in a vision the heavenly unceasing worship we say in the Byzantine rite in uh, the Eucharistic prayer or anaphora that is used uh, several times a year uh, called the Liturgy of St. Basil. The prayer is written actually by St. Basil, uh, Archbishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia in the fourth century. And he speaks of the, the cherubim and the seraphim that ceaselessly praise God with mouths. Of course, they're, they're immaterial beating, beings, so mouth is used metaphorically, but nevertheless, he says, with mouths that do not grow tired. And I've often commented on that to people saying, it's in contrast to us who, who, uh, whose mouths do grow tired and whose minds do grow tired. That's why, effort, that's why there is an effort in worship because it always uh, invites us to rise above our tendency to sink, to be heavy. But nevertheless, come up here, said the angel to John in the apocalypse. Come up here and enter into the door and see how heavenly reality is the source of any worship there can be on earth. So liturgical worship is understood as an essential part of God's self-revelation. So that's one initial thought for this evening. In regard, however, to the most holy Eucharist, uh, upon which we are reflecting this evening, I would like first for us to consider words that we are well familiar with. And these are words, of, they, we call them the words of institution, the words that the Lord is, is recorded as speaking at the supper in which he gave us the sacrament of his body and blood. And as you may know, there are four accounts of these words in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke. John does not have one for reasons that are his own. And then 1 Corinthians. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to take, it'll just take less than a minute, hopefully, to read those short verses to you. Because there are similarities and, and differences. Uh, in the four accounts. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, by the way, I'm reading this from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, which is the best overall uh, translation in terms of accuracy. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If we turn to St. Mark's Gospel, Mark 14, verse 22, 
we hear something that is almost the same. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Turning to Luke, Luke 22, verse, uh, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And finally, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, in which St. Paul tells us that these words were traditioned onto him, literally. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. And now this uh, translates it, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the word that's used is derived from the Greek paradosis, which is to hand on. For there was handed on to me from the Lord what I hand on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, if you were listening uh, to the way I read these verses, I intentionally emphasized a certain word which is used over and over again. And the word is a very little word, two letters. It's the word is, is. Now, there are other words that are consistently used in these accounts as well, body, blood, given. But the verb, sometimes used once, sometimes twice, sometimes three times in each account, is, is. This is my body, which is, and actually the uh, grammatical form of the verb in the original Greek is called the present progressive. That this is my body, which is being given for you. When the account includes that second clause, they don't all include it. But when it is, it's always rendered that way. This is my body, which is being given for you. This is my blood, which is being poured out for you or shed for you. So notice the present tense. This is not accidental. The present tense is in a very particular way, in, in a manner of speaking, because all of our human words have their limitations. But nevertheless, the present tense is uniquely associated with the divine being. All you have to do is think of the name that the Lord God gives to Moses, and he had not done it until Moses. When Moses asks the question, well, if, I, if, if I do as you tell me and go to the children of Israel, 
and, and say that I am to lead you out of Egypt. The Lord God has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And, and we should all know what the answer is. The answer is, I am, says God. Or in, in a full form with a predicate nominative, I am who I am. I am who I am. But always the first person singular with the pronoun, I and always the present tense of the verb, I am. Now, in other places of Scripture, yes, it is certain that the Lord speaks of himself as because he is Lord of all, as the God who is, who was, and who is to come. But the divine name, and as the theologians say, the divine mode of being is in the eternal present, in the eternal present. God is not confined in the past or the future as we are. Uh, one of the results of the fall is that our creaturely limitations have been intensified. Now, creatures by definition have limitations because they have a beginning and are created out of nothing. The only three persons that aren't created out of nothing are the divine persons. They aren't created at all. They're uncreated. The father without origin, the son begotten by the unoriginate father, eternally begotten, not in time, the Holy Spirit who proceeds, but always spoken of in that divine present. When Jesus speaks at the supper, that is the way in which he speaks. This act that he does and tells us to do as his memorial, uh, there's a very good argument that rather than saying in remembrance of me, a more accurate translation, Father Louis Bouillet, the great, the great uh, scholar of the liturgy, would insist upon this that we we should understand this if we're going to if we're going to continue to translate it do this in remembrance of me we should understand it as do this as my memorial the passover in the book of exodus is described as the eternal memorial of god's mighty act to deliver his people god's mighty work the word for this in hebrew is zikaron and in Greek, it's anamnesis. And it's very important to understand it, whether or not we remember the Greek or Hebrew word is secondary. But it's very important for us to understand, again, not just as a piece of information, but as something that we experience, that to do this as God's memorial uh, or in, in remembrance of him, it's not simply calling up something out of the past remembering it as if we were remembering, I don't know, George Washington or somebody else's birthday or, or some battle in some year. It's not an event in creaturely history alone that has these, these limitations. And as I mentioned, our imprisonment in the past and the future has become intensified as a result of the fall and therefore are being recreated in, in the image and fully according to the likeness of God involves us being set free from that prison of the past and the future. And therefore it becomes possible for us to experience what 
John experienced in the apocalypse to come up here and enter through the door into the presence of God. We may not have a vision like John had. But nevertheless, we are able to see with the eyes that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus see. And there's, that, is a, that is a remarkable description in, in Luke's gospel of the eternal present. Jesus walks and talks with them, opens the scriptures to them. And the moment that he takes the bread and blesses and breaks and gives to them, their eyes were opened and they knew him. And at the same moment, he visibly vanishes because it is no longer simply a sight that the eye as a physical organ registers, but the true eye, the inner eye, is opened and they are able to see him for who he is as risen and therefore eternally living. The words and the action, therefore, of Jesus at the supper place it in the context of an eternally present act that is done, that is spoken and accomplished by a divine person. Always, always we must remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is a divine person, one person in two natures. The humanity that he has taken upon himself, I mentioned this in one of our earlier reflections, is not the specific humanity of a human person because he's not one. He is a divine person. He doesn't become a human person, otherwise he'd be two people. And that's a self-contradiction. The divine person of the Son of God takes upon himself the humanity of each and every one of the human race. Their humanity joined to him in his divine personhood. That is what the incarnation means. And so, when he says, and uh, I would ask you to, uh, if you are of a liturgical tradition, as most of you are, because one of the peculiarities, and, and I'm, I just use the peculiarity in, at its most uh, basic sense. It's not a, it's not a criticism, but, but it's pointing out something that is uh, different. Uh, a peculiarity of the Roman liturgical tradition, the Latin liturgical tradition specifically, is that it changed the tense of the verb from the present to the future. Scripture does not use the future. But, but as you all know, you, you who go to, to Mass celebrated in English, you hear the words, this is my body which will be given for you. This is my blood which will be shed for you. Uh, no other liturgical tradition, none of the Eastern churches say that. It's always in the present as it is in the Scripture. Uh, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is being poured out for you. And I, I'm not going to go into a... Uh, description of how that transition to the future took place because it took place actually very early in the Latin tradition. It's not a modern change. It comes from the, even Father uh, Hezekiah mentioned Hippolytus, even in his time, there, it was beginning to be done. So it goes back early. But nevertheless, the scriptural examples, all four of them, and the Eastern liturgies, all of them, keep it in this present 
wishing to emphasize by that fact, and it's something no matter what our uh, Catholic tradition is, it's something essential for us to learn that this is an act, and these are words which have their origin in a person who, a divine person who lives in the eternal present. They speak of the giving of the body and the shedding, the pouring out literally of the blood, ekonomenon in, in Greek, or effundetur, uh, the, the future in the Latin, means to pour out, to pour out. Uh, shed is maybe a weaker translation of it. To be poured out is a more literal, a stronger translation. The liturgical tradition of the church has always insisted across the board universally that this act and these words of the, of the Lord are a voluntary act on his part. Voluntary. Again, something that we may never take for granted. Because they are the act that reveals his acceptance actively, not passively, actively, his acceptance of his death, of his death. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ does not come to him as some sort of tragic accident that's the result of evil people who plotted it, even though there is that dimension of it. But it's not the primary dimension. The primary dimension is, as our Lord himself describes it, no one takes away my life from, from me. I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it up again. When our Lord is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I could call upon my Father, and he would send me legions of angels. So to imagine that the active ones in the passion and death of our Lord Jesus are the ones who are arresting, condemning, torturing, and executing him, that they are the active ones, and the Lord is passive. And we might get that idea, because we are, we are told over and over again of the silence of the Lord. It's not a complete silence, because he does say certain things during his passion. But nevertheless, in many cases, Jesus is described during the Passion as ma making no reply. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and, and as an innocent lamb is dumb before its shears, so he opened not his mouth, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed. So there is this element of it, but it is not the kind of, of passivity that somehow cancels out the reality that the death of our Lord for the life of the world takes place because he wills it to take place. And that act of him willing it is revealed the day before it happens. Now, that is where we have to spend some time, and it will probably be the rest of the time that we have to spend in this reflection, because two things to be said about that that I uh, believe are very important for, for every Christian if we are to enter into this uh, depth of the mystery of the of the heart of the Son of God, his love for the world, which was created through him and for him, as the scripture says. And that is, first of all, that, as I have mentioned, it is a voluntary act. In terms of dying, 
none of us are capable of dying a purely voluntary death. That is because that unless we are, some of us who are hearing me speak tonight, unless some of us are going to be around when the Lord returns in glory on the last day, and it is clear that there will be people on this planet when the Lord returns in glory on the last day. And therefore, those people who are there then will not experience death, but everybody else will. It's a result of the fall. And therefore, we cannot choose whether or not to die. We all, unless we're here at the end, we all shall die. Even, for example, someone as heroic as the figure of St. Maximilian Maria Kolbe, and I'm sure you're all familiar with him, who we could say, yes, he voluntarily said to the commandant at, at Auschwitz, uh, take me instead of this married man and let me be starved to death in his place. Was that not a voluntary act? Yes, it was a voluntary act, but it still cannot be called formally a purely voluntary act because a purely voluntary act in terms of whether or not to die can only be accomplished by someone who does not have to die. And the Son of God does not have to die. He comes for that reason only. It's a, it's a paradox, isn't it? That we were not created by God to die. God created man for life and immortality, says the wisdom of Solomon. But by the envy of the devil, death entered into the world. So we're not created to die, yet we shall. We shall. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and he and death are absolute opposites. He is not only alive, but the living one and the source of life with the Father and the Spirit. He does not have to die, and he shall not die unless he should choose to do so. And that is the reason why, because he cannot experience death in his divinity that he takes upon himself, our humanity, so that as a divine person, he may experience death in the flesh, as the doctrine of the ecumenical councils makes clear. One of the Holy Trinity suffered and died in the flesh. So his death is a purely voluntary act. And it takes place in the eternal present of the divine will, with the, with the human will joined to it. And the human will joined to it, of course, is, part, is an expression of his entering into time. So there was a real night on, the, on the, real, be, the night before the real day that Jesus Christ was really crucified and died on the cross. All of these are historically so. But behind that history... There is the eternity of the divine person who is voluntarily experiencing these things. In the Eucharistic prayers or anaphore of the uh, Byzantine tradition, those of St. John Chrysostom, those of St. Basil, uh, which uh, are prayed one or the other of them at, at every liturgy celebrated. There's also the liturgy of St. James of Jerusalem but that is celebrated rarely these days. But the priest says these words, on the night in which he was given over or handed over, sometimes it's translated, betrayed and handed over, and then deliberately the text of the prayer in a sense corrects itself, or rather, or rather it said, it says, handed himself, 
handed himself over for the life of the world. So again, uh, emphasizing that voluntary core dimension of the Lord's act. Now, I wish uh, at, on this uh, final reflection to, to uh, introduce you, if you have not heard these before, to a few uh, words from some of the Syrian fathers of the church. And being Syrian, they wrote in Syriac or, or Aramaic. The two languages are two dialects of the same language. The language that the Lord and the apostles spoke probably as their first language, although it's quite likely that they were all, also had considerable facility in Greek because Greek was the language of the Mediterranean world. And, as I, and, and even a number of the apostles had Greek names, not Hebrew ones, Andrew, Philip so forth. These are Greek names. So these are, now you may have heard the name of the most well-known father, Syrian father, Saint Ephraim, Saint Ephraim the Syrian. He lived in the fourth century, and he is the father of church hymnography. Uh, until the time of Saint Ephraim, in terms of hymns, Christians sang mostly the Psalms. I think I mentioned this before, but Ephraim began, there were a few Christian hymns that had developed, like the Great Doxology or the Gloria and, and a few others. But beginning with Ephraim and then continuing on in the Greek and Latin traditions, Christian hymnography had, had its birth, really, at that time. But there were others in that, that group around St. Ephraim that also are numbered among the Syrian fathers, and one of them was St. Ephraim's nephew, whose name was Kirilonos, not, not very well known, but uh, in this collection of, of writers, this is a wonderful collection, by the way, made by Father Raniero Cantalamesa, who has been the papal preacher for three papacies now, called Easter in the Early Church. Hard book to find, but real, a real treasure if you can. Uh, this is from Ephraim's nephew, Kirilonus's homily on the Pascha. The true Paschal lamb speaks joyfully to those who will eat him. And the firstborn announced the Pascha in the dining room to his disciples. Our Savior invited himself to his own immolation and blood shedding. His life-giving bread was nutritious and well-prepared and his sheaf of, of ears of grain came home full. Beautiful poetic language. The matter of his body was permeated with the yeast of his divinity. His mercy welled up and his love overflowed so that he might become food for his own. A feast the bridegroom prepared for his bride to allay her hunger. And then comes the words that are the climax of this little passage, and uh, I hope they shock you. Our Lord slew his own body, and only then did mortals slay it. He pressed it out into the cup of salvation, and only then did they press it out on the cross. As priest, he offered himself ahead of time ahead of time, not as a prisoner of time, but ahead of time. He offered himself. Now, 
we must, of course, understand these words in their context. Saint uh, Saint Kirlonis uh, is not saying that that this is a kind of suicidal act, this voluntary death. But he, nor is he denying that our Lord really dies, suffers, and dies on the cross on Good Friday. Of course, he does. But the reason why these take place, what what makes these acts of the Lord's passion possible is that eternal act, eternal because it takes place in the eternal present of a divine person who wills it so. So that when the Lord says, this is my body being broken, this is my blood being shed, he is speaking truly the truth from the eternity of a divine person. Now, another Syrian father that speaks in the same way uh, has the name of Afrates. Our Savior ate the Pascha with his disciples on that on the holy night. He took bread and blessed and gave it to them and said to them, This is my body. Take eat of it, all of you. Likewise, over the wine he blessed and said to them, This is my blood, the new covenant, shed for many for the remission of sins. Our Lord rose from where he had performed the Pascha and given his body to be eaten and his blood to be drunk and went with his disciples to the place where he was arrested. Now one whose body is eaten and whose blood is drunk is counted among the dead. The separation of the body from the blood. With his own hands our Lord gave his body to be eaten and before being crucified he gave his blood to be drunk. And he was taken on that night, and his trial lasted until the sixth hour of the next day. And at the time of the sixth hour, they sentenced him and lifted him up in crucifixion. When they were judging him, he said nothing and answered not a word to his judges. He, who, he was, of course, able to speak and answer. But it is impossible for one who is counted among the dead to speak. And from the sixth to the ninth hour, there was darkness. And he gave over his spirit to his father at the ninth hour. And he was among the dead in the night in which the next day dawned, the night of the Sabbath, and for the whole day, as well as for three hours on the eve of the Passover. And in the night in which the first of the week dawned, at the time when he had given his body and blood to his disciples, the same time of night, he rose from the dead. Now show us... What are the three days and three nights which our Savior spent among the dead? Now, Afratus is, is speaking of the passage when the Lord said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights uh, in the heart of the earth among the dead. For we see that there were the three hours on the eve when he, of the Passover when he suffered and the night in which the Sabbath dawned, and its whole day, and then on the night of the first day of the week he arose. Where are these three days and three nights? There are indeed three days and three nights, beginning from the time when he gave his body for food and his blood for drink. For it was night time when Judas departed from them, and the eleven disciples ate the body and drank the blood of the Savior. Behold, therefore, one night, the one on which the next day began, for the, ne the new day begins at night, 
and he stood trial until the sixth hour. Behold, therefore, one day and one night, and the three hours of darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour, and then the three hours after the darkness. Behold, two days and two nights. And so the entire night in which the Sabbath dawned, and the whole day of the Sabbath completed for our Lord three days and three nights among the dead. And in the night of the first of the week, he arose from among the dead. Now, this is a, a wonderful and very deep, we could say, mystical description of the Lord's being dead from the moment he willingly accepts death. And that moment is revealed in time at the institution. And the cross the next day realizes it, but does not begin it, brings it to its completion. When our Lord Christ from the cross, it is consummated, it is completed, it is finished. That which began with his willing it voluntarily reached its climax now in the reality, the physical reality of his death. Now, blessed John Henry Newman, soon to be canonized, has said also in his sermon on the mental sufferings of our Lord in the Passion, that our Lord immolates himself from within. He says, he's speaking of the, his sweat of blood in Gethsemane. He says, from, from whence comes this first blood shedding of the Lamb of God? He says, no scourge, no, no thorn, no nail, no spear has touched him yet. But the effusion of his blood comes from within, come from, comes from within, comes from this act of his divine will in communion with his human will, his voluntary act for the life of the world. Now, finally, I will conclude with just a couple sentences from the book that I began reading uh, at the beginning of. Uh, tonight's reflection. And here we have this. The once for all offering of Christ upon the cross, because the letter to the Hebrew says that it is once for all, not over and done with, but once for all. The perfection and conclusion of all bloody sacrifices. This offering of Christ upon the cross cannot be seen, cannot be seen, listen to this carefully, cannot be seen as the key ingredient of what atonement means, unless, unless, it is viewed as an integral part, again, I'll start at the beginning, this once-for-all offering of Christ upon the cross, the perfection and conclusion of bloody sacrifices, cannot be seen as the key ingredient of what atonement means, unless it is viewed as an integral part of the incarnational self-sacrifice of the Father's Son, perfected only in the Eucharistic participation in his body and blood. A statement such as, Christ atoned for our sins upon the cross, is incomplete. Not false, obviously, but incomplete from the testimony of the Church's liturgical practice until we see the work of the cross 
as completed in the chalice where it began. The atonement for sins did not happen at a moment in the past. It happens at the moment of man's communion in the divine mystery of Christ's body and blood, when the joining together of God and man that took place in Bethlehem, that reached throughout all of life and even death through the cross, that defeated death in the resurrection, is made real and present in the faithful communicant who receives into his human body and is joined bodily and spiritually with the divine human person of the incarnate Son. So it is that that I wish to commend to your memory, not as something that's dredged up to the past, from the past, but as the present reality of the greatest mystery that the Lord has given his church, and that is the presence of his own self-sacrifice for the life of the world, of which St. Basil said, he gave himself up voluntarily as a ransom to death in which we were held captive. He gave himself up voluntarily as a ransom to death in which we were held captive. The fathers of the church do not speak of the ransom of Christ's self-sacrifice as somehow paying the devil off. St. Gregory the Theologian says, the devil doesn't deserve any payoff. Nor do they speak of the self-sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God as somehow God punishing his son in the name of all the sinful members of the human race, God demanding satisfaction for his son. That is actually uh, an abhorrent way of speaking of the atonement. Rather, it is the voluntary handing over of the Son of God, yes, in perfect obedience to the Father who gave his Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That voluntary act in which he gives himself up as a ransom, yes, to us, to us and our death in which we are held captive so that we might be set free from that captivity. So those are some considerations taken from the riches of the fathers of the church on what is the heart of our liturgical life and with what great love, a love that is founded in its eternal reality that proceeds from God, not as something of our making and imagining, but as our entrance, our door into a life inside the Holy Trinity. So I, I thank you for your patience throughout these reflections and hope that they have been uh, a blessing for you and ask for your prayers for me. Thank you, Father David. I, I've, I, uh, very beautiful presentation and a beautiful way to conclude this series. Father, thank you so much um, for your insights. Father, um, uh, someone was asking about that book you mentioned by Father uh, Kentel Mesa, who I I second your your comments. A great, 
great preacher and, uh, and, and writer and scholar, and I'm, I would like to get my hands on that book also, but can you give us the title of that again? Yes, yes. This one that I have tonight, I have a number of his books, but this one is called Simply Easter in the Early Church. Mm-hmm. Easter in the nice. Early Church. Uh, there's, there's other, um, he has books, many of them that go through the liturgical year, The Mystery of Christmas, The Mystery of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit and the life of Jesus, the mystery of the Eucharist and so forth. I, and they're all to be recommended very highly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm rather puzzled why they have not been more popular than I, uh, than I think they are. They, I, they should have an enormous popularity, but mm, yeah. they're hard to find. Uh, not impossible, but you, you have to dig a little bit. Ernest. Father, you had mentioned about the, uh, in the Mass of the Latin Rite, that the uh, tense was future tense? Yeah. Do you know the reason why? That is one of the mysteries of liturgical history. Uh, now, it, it, those of you who know the, the Mass of the Roman Rite in Latin know that the words of, the words of institution in, in the older form of the Mass uh, for, for the consecration of the bread simply uh, hoc est and in corpus meum. So uh, this is, for this is my body. And in, in, that, in that expression, there's no uh, second clause, you know, which is broken or which is given for you. It's not said at all at that point. However, in the consecration of the chalice, uh, it, it says again in Latin, hic est calix sanguinis mei novum, no, then qui provobis et promotis effundetur, effundetur. Now that is future. That's the future tense of the verb effundo, to, to pour out. If it were to be present, it would be effunditur, with an I. So I for present, E for future. Now, in the oldest Latin texts of the, the, of the New Testament, the, like, like the Greek, the verbs are in the present tense. So I, I have never been able to, and I've asked the question many times, I've never been able to, to penetrate uh, exactly when or who or why the tense was changed, but it, but it was changed. But now the, the, the reason for it, I mean, we could say, uh, but it, it's speculation, is that it's, it's simply wishing to, to establish a relationship between what Jesus is doing at the supper on one day to what he will be doing on the cross on the next day. And the, and the next day, chronologically, comes after the Thursday. It's the Friday. Friday comes after Thursday. And that's an obvious enough reason for such a thing to happen. The peculiarity of it is, though, that uh, it's not recorded in the Scripture that way, and it's not recorded in any of the, in any of the earliest liturgical texts. And then there's a continuity of usage in, in the Eastern churches where... where uh, even though no, no liturgical prayer, no, no Eucharistic prayer in any tradition simply picks Matthew, Mark, Luke, or 1 Corinthians and quotes it verbatim. It's always kind of adjusted by the tradition of the church. And that's one of the adjustments that was made in the Latin tradition. 
but it's a peculiar one. I, I mean, I think I'm say, trying to present that from an objective point of view. It's a peculiar one given the, uh, the unanimity of the New Testament traditions and, and uh, then the, the universal other than that particular example, continued use of the present tense. And I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that, that it's somehow erroneous. I'm simply saying it's peculiar. So please do not do not say that Father David in his talk said that, <laughs> you know, that there's, what, what I'm saying is this, I, I mention it because I, I think that the present tense, I'm convinced that the present tense is there, that liturgical tradition upholds this uh, for, the, for the reasons that I mentioned in the talk. That is that it is an expression of the eternal act of the Son of God, and that's always described in the present. That it's not simply a matter of this is on one day, this is on the next day. That's beyond all that. It's it's like it's like the expression that we find in First uh, Peter and in the Apocalypse that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If you try to fit that into some sort of chronology, past, future, you're just going to get all tied up. You have to accept it for what it is. And likewise, for the Lord's use of the present tense in the, in the gospel tense, and, and in most of the liturgical texts that proceed from there. That's the point. Father, we have a couple of questions coming in. Um, one in particular asked for a clarification between um, Jesus taking his own life. Mm. You talked about us will to death mm -hmm. uh, during your talk and how important that is, even in the, in the Eucharistic liturgy of, of, of St. John Chrysostom, uh, that he willingly goes to the cross. Uh, and then someone like St. Saint, uh, the Syrian father is saying he slew himself. So exactly, which gets awfully close to this question. Of saying, well, Jesus, it sounds like kind of like taking your own life, you know, suicide or something. All one can say is that the Lord comes for one purpose, uh, and that purpose is the life and salvation of the world. The life and salvation of the world, the destiny of, of the human being, the, the greatest of God's visible creations, the destiny of the human being has been obstructed by human beings becoming unnaturally imprisoned in death. Death is not according to our nature. For anybody to die, for any human being to die, where I'm not speaking of, of animals or plants, but for any human being to die is unnatural. It's not in accordance with our nature. It's not in accordance with being in the image and likeness of God. So death becomes the great, the great barrier, if you will, between human beings and communion with God. St. Athanasius the Great says in his treatise on the Incarnation that God could have forgiven all the sins of the world gratuitously without the Incarnation. So you cannot say primarily that the Incarnation takes place so God can forgive any, everybody. What the Incarnation accomplishes is that the Son of God enters humanity and enters the material world in order that he may give his life 
for that creation. So it is a free gift. Someone who, someone who destroys their life is not doing it to save anyone or anything. It's an act of despair and, in fact, uh, an implosion upon the self, tragically enough. And that's why suicide is a grave sin, even though some who, some who commit it do so because their, their minds are so troubled that they do not have control over their actions sometimes, and the church takes that into account. But suicide, objectively, is a grave sin. So Jesus' death is not a, is not a death-giving death. It's a life-giving death precisely because it is a free act of love by a divine person who knows that that willing acceptance of death will be the act that causes the tyranny of death over creation to be broken. So what appears, what could appear from a merely human, a merely temporal, a merely chronological viewpoint to be a destructive act is because Jesus is who he is, the ultimate life-giving act of love. Father, also, uh, somebody's asking the question, um, uh, at the, making sure they get, their, they get their terms right here, that um, at, at, at the time of death, Christ's human nature died. No, a nature can't die. <laughs> okay. So they, they're asking for his clarification on yeah, this. Yeah, it's a good question. About, well, hold on. They're saying, they're saying Christ's human nature died, but his, his divine nature did not. And trying to explain. Can you please clarify that for yes, everybody? Yes, I, person can. And I can. Remembering, of course, that, that we can only, the best we can do is to speak adequately of such things. We can't, we can't you know, contain, exhaust such yes. things in a few words. But to speak adequately, it is the person of Jesus Christ, the acting subject, the one who says, I, he it is who dies. A nature is not a person in that sense. A nature exists only so far as it is personalized. So you can't, you know, you can't go out and say, give me, give me two and a half pounds of human nature. <laughs> it doesn't exist in that mode. You can, you can give me, you can say, give me X number of pounds of Father David, of which there's more pounds than there ought to be, and Lent will hopefully cure some of that. <laughs> but because that is, that is personalized, that is enfleshed, it's incarnate. So our Lord is a divine person. A divine person is incapable of suffering and death as a, as a divine person, unless that divine person willingly takes upon himself that which is capable of suffering and death. So he takes upon himself humanity, the human nature, and in that human nature, he suffers and dies. So. That is to say that from the ninth hour on Good Friday until late in the night of the first day of the week, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, is dead. Is dead. He has died, however, in the flesh. 
in the flesh. That means that it's a death not only because it's a voluntary death, but because it is the death of, a, of an enfleshed divine person, it's a death that is singular. And everything that we, we see about that death, Jesus' body on the cross becomes the fountain of, of blood and water, as John describes it. He says this is the, the great mystery that he bears witness as, a, as an eyewitness who knows that his testimony is true. Jesus' body does not begin to decay. Jesus knows no corruption. His flesh is incorrupt. Yet he truly dies. And I think it was you, Father Hezekiah, who, who quoted the, the hymn that is said frequently in the Byzantine Rite and at the Divine Liturgy. You were in the tomb with the body in Hades, the condition of death, in Hades with the soul as God, in paradise with the thief, and on the throne with the Father and the Holy Spirit. All, not, not one, not, which is, if you were to be asked this question, which, which is true? Is, is Jesus in the tomb with the body, or, or is he in Hades with the soul, or is he in paradise with the thief, or is he on the throne with the Father? Pick one for your multiple choice dogmatic theology test. Well, it's, it's all of the above. It's all of the above. It's not one or the other, but all, but all. No one, no one ascends into heaven, says Jesus to Nicodemus, quoted last time. But he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven, who is in heaven. That is the mystery of a divine person. That is why that it is not the best thing to spend too much emphasis. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. It is not the best thing to put too much emphasis on the physical horrors of our Lord's suffering. No. Because any number of people have suffered horrible deaths, not just for hours, but for days and weeks and months. Little children it shoveled into crematory ovens, for heaven's sakes. We're not saved because Jesus' physical passion was so awful. Forty years after Jesus' passion, the Romans crucified so many Jews, they ran out of wood in the environs around Jerusalem. The roads were lined with crucified Jewish men. We are saved through Jesus' sufferings because he is who he is. One of the Holy Trinity suffered and endured that in the flesh for love of us. That is what is at the heart. That's why even in, in art, you note, classical Christian iconography, whether it's Eastern or Western, did not emphasize the physical horrors of Jesus' sufferings. It's only in the second millennium that there is a shift and, and an attempt to portray that realistically, whether it's in in. Uh, paintings or or even film or such and and I think that that again we have to be very careful I don't say that I, I again don't quote me saying Father David said you know graphic depictions of the passion are bad or anything like that I'm not saying that I'm saying they have to be used carefully and in the proper context 
Father David, thank you again for the gift of your teaching, for your time with us. It's worth it. And uh, we appreciate the gift of your time, your self-sacrifice, your sharing your time with us. Thank you very much. And thank you. And, and may God bless us all and bring us to a, a great and full celebration of his, of his passion, death, and resurrection in the weeks to come. Um, uh, may God bless you all, asking for your prayers for the Institute of Catholic Culture and for all of our members as we journey together. May God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.